Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Quotient, a new podcast series where we examine innovation and discuss how it can fuel future progress. I'm Andrew Staples, Editorial Director of Initiatives at Economist Impact, an arm of the Economist Group which works with organisations to further their mission. This podcast is supported by Philip Morris International as part of an Economist Impact research programme called the Innovation Quotient, which examines how innovation could be fostered so as to drive socio-economic progress around the world. In this episode, we take a look at how the digital economy ecosystem in South Africa is driving innovation for socio-economic progress. I'm delighted to be joined by my guests today, Lobokosi Dalmini and Marlon Parker. Lobokosi is the Executive Director for Gills in Fintech. Its mission is to break down barriers, amplify voices and pave the way for gender diversity within the fintech landscape. Marlon Parker is the founder of R-Labs, which is a social enterprise that focuses on empowering communities through technology and innovation. Nobakosi, Marlon, thank you for joining me today. Before we delve into South Africa's innovation ecosystem, perhaps I could invite you to share a little bit more about the work that you do. Nobakosi. Thanks, Andy. Um, so in the Girls and Fintech Foundation, we really work with young women from under-resourced and underprivileged communities to help them get a f- foothold into the tech industry. But we also work with SMMEs from rural areas. Uh, we started during the COVID area to help traditional SMMEs running face-to-face business to actually migrate their physical business to the digital landscape. And that has enabled them to reach a wider diversity of clients and reach clients outside of their geographic locations. Thank you very much. I'm very much um, interested in, in hearing more about the work that you do in South Africa and beyond as we go through this, uh, this conversation. And, and Marlon, to come to you as well. Uh, thank you so much, Andy. And um, so our labs has been around for the last 14, 15 years with a very core focus of looking at how we can create what we call hope economies. So we love using innovation and skills and training as a way to lead people into sustainable livelihoods. So we do that largely kind of through three main pillars as art labs. One, we provide people from townships and underrepresented communities. We provide them with access to digital skills programs and no cost to people. Um, So we run our skills academies. We run what we call our innovation lab where we enable a lot of these community members and champions, we allow them to build solutions that they believe are important for them to solve. And then thirdly, we support our communities around SME building, uh, support entrepreneurs, allow people to kind of start their own ventures. And we do this specifically in under-resourced and underrepresented communities. Excellent. Thank you very much. To, to go back to the introduction, I mentioned that according to our analysis, South Africa seems to be doing pretty well when it comes to certain features of the digital landscape and fostering innovation for socioeconomic progress. But when I'm talking about the digital economy and the digital landscape, of course, we're talking about digital infrastructure, data governments, um, uh, participation in the digital economy and, and, and so on. And I'm wondering what your experience of that is as you work with with the groups that you do? I think for me, uh, it's partly not surprising um, because there is a lot of groundwork that has been done over the past, let's say, decade or so in South Africa that has really assisted 
the country to um, have an enabling environment for that digital innovation space. One of the things I can mention is the regulatory environment where currently every South African can have a bank account. It's quite affordable for people to have bank account where they can then use that to transact online. So it facilitates the migration when people um, are able to move in that direction. But also, even in our cities, there are certain areas where people can access free Wi-Fi to um, whether people want to update their CVs or to search for work or just to browse the internet and so on. And those are the things that really support the work that we do. And Marlon, coming to you as well, how important is that digital infrastructure to enable the work that you do? Yeah, there's definitely access, but we still have some challenges. Um, costs like data costs is very expensive. Um, so to be connected will cost people a substantial amount of money um, I do believe there's certain areas where we need to kind of drive the reduction of cost so that more people can participate. And this is specifically in the communities where we work. The other thing, I feel that we don't do enough where it comes to enabling people to understand how they can leverage this kind of infrastructure now to create livelihoods. We, we are big consumers of technology. Um, there's some interesting innovations happening at a grassroots level. We've got some very good examples of startups that's doing very well across the continent and globally. But I do feel in the communities where we are in, we still have a lot of work to do around creating that enabling environment to to not just accessing the technology, but utilizing this technology to create sustainable livelihoods. Um, And also it only becomes really useful if it can change or transform people's day-to-day lives. And and that's something that I feel we, we still have a lot of work to do. But absolutely, a lot of good work has been done. Not because to come back to you, you mentioned that you know partnerships are very important. Marlon, I think that, that the same with you. Um, you mentioned various agencies and also SMEs as well. Could it, can I push you a little bit on the importance of partnerships in the work that you're doing? Perhaps you have a an example of of a partnership that's worked well and and, and why that is. So yes, we do work a lot with partners. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do any of the things that we do without partnerships, especially because we go into remote locations where, you know, communities are very isolated, sometimes slightly distrusting of external people. So um, we find that, especially because we work with women, um, women SMME owners, we find that because they organize themselves, everywhere you go, you'll find that there's some formation of women who are in business that is there. And we we really use those platforms to be able to access and to say, okay, we see the work that we're doing. This is the value that we think digital enablement will bring into your environment and assist you to grow your businesses. Also, I mean, I, I would be wrong if I don't mention our donors and our funding partners. They allow us to go into this environment because when people are trying to figure out whether to buy bread or to buy data connectivity, you know, to then start charging them for the training would be unreasonable. So we do have funding partners who allow us to deliver the training um, for free, given um, that people are committed and they are going to complete the training. But we also um, try very hard to work with some local government agencies. And in some places, it, it does work really well. For example, 
they can make a space available for um, the people that we've trained to come in, let's say once a week or something, to use a shared computer or to access internet connectivity there if they need to print documents and things like that. Some of the partnerships that we'd like or the partners we'd like to see coming on board are more of the the banking institutions, the funding institutions, because everywhere you go, SMMEs will talk about funding and that's such a, a difficult space to get into. And we find that the banks in particular are still operating the way they did, let's say, 20 years ago, and they really haven't moved with the times. They might have uh, updated their marketing and their front-end how they interact with you as such as a prospective customer, but how they actually process you and how they deal with you is still very, um, you know, based in the 1980s style of, of doing business. And those are the kind of conversations we'd like to see happening where we do say to them, look, you have a new breed of um, business owners now. You know, they operate very differently. Their cash flow patterns are very different. So there's, a, there's still a lot of work that could be done there. Fascinating. And, and Marlon, coming back to you on, on this issue of partnerships, because when we were talking earlier, you were describing how you, how you operate, how you get into communities. And perhaps you could share that as a, a slightly different example of, of working with, with people to identify problems and then coming up with the solutions for them. Yeah. You know, so for us, we take a very different approach where we look at innovation. Uh, we believe innovation is everywhere. Um, we take a grassroots approach. In other words, we embed ourselves in the communities. You know, who understands poverty best than someone who lives in poverty? And a lot of our approaches has been around who's already in the community that are already creating substantial value and how can we get alongside those assets and increase the value of these assets? And, and that's a very simple way of building partnerships. Um, and, and by doing that, it then allows us the, the freedom with the community itself to actually then start identifying what are some of the kind of the big challenges that we are facing in this particular context of our communities. Um, so, so for us, it's always about embedding ourselves in the community, identify these community assets, increase the value of these assets. So it, it means that you're coming alongside to create more value within the community. And then there's two things that we then do thereafter. One, we develop the capacity of people so that people can run these innovation processes. And then secondly, we then look at how do we begin to build enterprises and ventures so that investment can come into these local communities. And that has kind of been, and we've been fascinated around learning from the ground up and seeing the opportunities that, that emerges from that. The other great thing about doing it that way, you immediately have that trust network in the community that allows adoption of whatever innovation is emerging. And that is a very powerful way of, of doing it in a, a very different way. Yeah. You talked there about developing the capacity of people. Yes. How are you helping to develop on what capabilities and how is that helping them to grow their businesses? You know, for example, we're speaking about digital access, right? So people have access to technology. So now you begin to teach them that you can build a tool with a mobile device that will enable you to, for example, set up a little marketplace so you could kind of buy and sell things. But for us, fundamentally, it's how do we leverage the power of technology to get you from where you are to where you can start earning. And for some, it might go into doing extensive training around digital skills. Um, for others, it might simply just be, I want to learn how I can run a business. 
a manager business, a starter business. So those are kind of like the capacities that we are referring to. But fundamentally, at the end of it, it needs to ensure the person is better off than what they were when they started the journey with us. And, and Nobikos, is, is that a similar story with you in terms of the type of skills and requirements that people have, the, the people that you're interacting with? And, and how, do you, how do you meet those, uh, those needs? So um, in our SMME program, we take small business owners who have no digital or tech knowledge at all. We split our training into two phases, where the first phase is in-person. We actually go and stay in the village or in, in the township, wherever they are. We set up a temporary training space where we train them on basic computer usage. And from there, we introduce them slowly into digital platforms um, where they can be able to then market their businesses. You know, there are different strategies depending on the type of industry a person is in. Not everybody is going to transact online. Not all businesses um, are product-based. But where they are, you know, we introduce them to e-commerce um, and platforms where they can set up their own e-commerce sites or if it's a, a consulting-style business um, a, a platforms where they can be able to take bookings, receive payments, and engage with customers online um, over video conferencing and so on. And the second phase is a continuation of that, um, where we're still continuing the, the training, but it's now um, remote. And we do that uh, firstly because we don't want to take them out of their businesses for too long but also because we want them to get familiar with operating in the digital space while they're in the training program so that they can become confident and comfortable doing it while we are there hand-holding them and um, being able to coach them and support them and give them tips and so on. Um, but it's not only about the technology. So we also focus a lot on the soft skills because you know if you give a, a customer bad service, in a face-to-face interactions, they might tell one or two friends about it. But if a customer gives you a bad review online, you know, it could be seen by thousands of people and can have a, a very bad impact on the business. So we do focus a lot on the soft skills that um, can make a business successful and how people need to think differently when they're operating in the digital space as opposed to just in face-to-face interactions. In, in terms of a sort of time frame from you sort of going into a community or, or starting a project, how long does that uh, phase take until people have developed the skills and, and they're building their businesses? So from start to finish, we do the program over a three-month period. So it might be that the first two weeks are face-to-face. And then from there, we migrate to the online space where we'll give them access to an e-learning platform where we upload weekly um, course content and they're able to submit their uh, assignments. And it's very practical. So while um, they're doing the, the training, there's also labs where we can be able to verify the work that they're doing because it's all online. So we can go and see their platforms, review them, be able to give them um, pointers on where they can improve. But by the end of the three-month period, they have their businesses up and running. And by then, they should also have a very um, significant following, at least of the existing customers. Thank you very much. One of the findings from our research as well is that for um, innovations to be 
targeted towards socioeconomic progress, that they need to be people-centric. They really need to be grounded. They need to be solving for challenges that people uh, face as well. And one way to do that is to be embedded uh, in those communities, in those societies where there is a need. But but I wonder, how do you foster that sense of people-centricity when you're delivering, for example, training and support digitally and and in many cases remotely as well? How how can you keep that sort of people focus to it? Uh, Marlon, to you. Yeah, I mean, in our approach, we go into communities and before we even start with any programs, we actually try to learn about the local context. In some instances, we literally will be there for years before we actually do our, our first programmatic aspect. And the reason for that is largely we want to first try and understand like I've mentioned earlier, what are those assets? Who's currently already doing good in the community? And what can we do to support what they are doing? So purely coming in as a, as a support mechanism is the first kind of starting block for us. Uh, we, we do a lot of meeting with community leaders, key kind of stakeholders in the broader community. So we really spend a lot of time not coming with any solutions, um, purely trying to understand the, the pains and the challenges that is being faced in the, in the local context. And we always want to make sure that whatever we do within community are led by local champions. In our model, we have these innovation hubs. So we have local champions that actually run these hubs with our support. And we try and do that as far and as wide as possible. The fact that we are listening and trying to understand and then enabling local champions to actually derive the change has been what really helps us strengthening that trust network. Novikosi, to come to you on on this issue of building trust, I'm wondering how you're leveraging the success stories that you have to build trust in in new communities and get more people involved. I think in those communities where there's not a lot of, let's say, skills development training, um, our programs become popular very quickly. In fact, in many instances, we, we get a lot more demand than what we can actually take in. But uh, I'll give an example. There's a young man um, in KZN who was making pizza at home and he was um, taking orders via WhatsApp um, and people would stop in front of his house, you know, for their pizza. And, you know, it's such a beautiful story because it's innovative and he grew very popular when he was able to have an e-commerce site and have people supporting him and working with him. Luckily for for him and also for us in a way, you know, he got a lot of media attention and was even invited in radio stations um, where, you know, people were interviewing his success stories because it's a product that people like, but it's a product that not a lot of um, small businesses in the townships would offer. Um, And there's a lot of those success stories, especially in rural areas, things like um, agro-processing business where people are, are taking the agricultural products and creating a product from that. So we have a number of ladies who create like these very um, delicious sauces, for example, um, where we've helped them to um, really um, improve their branding and um, using digital um, tools to design their packaging and branding and so on, where Traditionally, the the sources that people would buy in the supermarket, they're now buying it from these people online and having it delivered wherever they are in the country. And I think the the really um, amazing thing is that it's a local product that has been developed by local people. So those are the kind of stories that really gain traction and start trending very quickly online. And 
you know, we are able to leverage off that when we go back to those communities or go to communities close by where they know that success story and they know that person came through our program. Well, thank you both for those very interesting and appetizing uh, examples of, of success stories. But we also know that innovation comes with a lot of failures and uh, we need to iterate and so on. So I'm, I'm just wondering if you have some examples of where you've had a failure or if you had a challenge. There's something that you, you've learned from your experiences, particularly in terms of helping people to develop the skills and capabilities to go online, to leverage the, the digital landscape, to build businesses, um, and what you've learned from those challenges. Marlon, if I could come to you. Yeah, I mean, sure, a lot of failures. <laughs> I think I, I remember we had a, a entrepreneur, we were hoping to build a mobile payment system. And part of the, the process from our side was we thought, well, Clearly, there's, there's enough value in backing and supporting this entrepreneur, um, getting a team around them. And we made, we made progress. We made good progress. But the, the challenge there was, from the entrepreneur perspective, we immediately realized that, that the entrepreneur actually did not have the, the full-on extent of knowledge that we thought that we, we had with the entrepreneur. Um, in other words, the entrepreneur wasn't embedded enough in the industry around the payment space. And unfortunately, it didn't go too well because you, it's so easy that you, you, know, you see these bright lights and you're like, oh, everybody's talking payments. So I want to do payments as an example, but rather stick to the thing of what you know that is your experience. And out of that, you begin to innovate. One example is we have these entrepreneurs that are building a digital payments platform for the minibus taxis industry in South Africa which a lot of people have tried and it's not an easy industry because it's cash driven. But this young entrepreneur is a third generation from being a part of the taxi owners, right? So they've been owners of taxis. They know how the industry work. So he's got a deep rooted, embedded knowledge of the industry. And most probably that's why we believe he's probably better positioned to innovate out of that experience, out of knowing exactly how they had to deal with things, because that gives you a head start. Hmm. And, and Nobukozi, you do a lot with girls in fintech as well. There must be uh, a lot of success, a lot of failures. And, and I wonder what your learnings are from, that, from those experiences. Yes, it's a lot of learnings, um, especially working with women in conservative communities, I can put it that way. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we have to go in there with a the partner that's known, because there are instances where the women might need to negotiate, you know, with people in the family that I'm going to attend this training. And whether it's the husband or the father or whoever would need to um, grant permission for them to attend this training. So in some instances, we, we try to work in a very central location that is close to the routes of transport so that people using public transportation can access it um, easily. In other instances, we work with our partners to organize transport that are able to pick up people from their homes and drop them off at the end of the day, just so that the, they have that sense of comfort that they, the women are safe. But also around infrastructure, I think we've spoken a lot about the cost of data in South Africa, which is a big hurdle. One of the other hurdles that we, we've encountered, because when we do the training, we, we say to um, the SMME owners, bring your own device so that we train you while you're working on your own device. Because if you work on our device, you know, some of these platforms, the front end renders differently on different types of devices. So we find that sometimes the devices don't have the adequate specs 
to run certain things, you know, it might not have enough memory to download all the apps that are required and so on. So one of the things that we are looking at now is being able to um, come in with funding for those um, entrepreneurs who are doing well, but are struggling with their devices to be able to sponsor them with a device that can assist them in their business. And I think I've also mentioned the soft skills training, which um, is a big sus- critical success factor for us. So we have to start with that, um, fostering that sense of belief and confidence and being open to new things. Um, we talk a lot about time management, professional communications and so on. And these are the things that are not really technology focused, but can make you really successful or they can be the root of the failure in, in the business itself. Um, just in the last few minutes, I'd like to turn our, our, our thoughts to the future and, uh, and just to pose a general question to you both about, about what's next. Where, where do you see your priorities? Where do you see the opportunities uh, for you and your organizations to grow? And Marlon, let me come to you. I think for us as our labs, we believe that the challenges that we face in South Africa also presents immense opportunities. Um, there's no doubt that the internet is a great leveler of opportunity. Um, where the opportunity lies for us is if, if we can address some of these thing, key things around making sure it's, it's accessible, it's cheaper, and, and really making sure people understanding how to utilize technology to improve their livelihoods. And, and that is where, for us, the biggest opportunity lies. It's making sure that people have, with access, we're setting up these physical infrastructure pods or hubs in communities that is run by the community for the community which is one place where it becomes a node where people can unlock opportunities, where people can, you know, where people can come and build together, learn together. Um, so that's kind of one thing that we've already been doing, and we've been doing it in partnership with the Development Bank of Southern Africa and other partners. An- another area for us, I think, is also how do we ensure that a lot of our entrepreneurs and businesses that are moving into this dom- domain have access to market access? How do we support them with that? And that, for me, is where the opportunity lies and and the areas where we believe we must probably going to spend a lot of our time and energy on. Thank you very much. And Nobukosi, to you on the same question. I think for us, it's just expanding the scope of um, communities where we work because there's still such a great need everywhere. Um, And, you know, to to really be able to engage communities and take um, training on a a wider scale. But also uh, entrepreneurs are now starting to look at bigger markets, you know, exporting um, their products outside of the borders of South Africa. And I think one of the the benefits that the COVID-19 pandemic brought to us is that there was an increase in these companies that do deliveries, these networks of um, you can now just go to a shop within your community to drop off a parcel and There's a network that is able to route it to your customer, to a shop in their community and so on. But those small networks, internal networks inside South Africa are now being integrated into bigger companies. They're being acquired by bigger companies that have capabilities for exporting and importing. So we're seeing some of our um, entrepreneurs exporting to countries like Botswana, Namibia, and so on. And really, um, there's opportunities for us to partner with trade organizations to bring our entrepreneurs into bigger markets in the developing world 
And I think that's going to have a huge impact in uplifting local communities where, you know, people were just selling to their neighbours and now they can sell to the world. Well, thank you both for sharing your insights and experiences. With the Innovation Quotient, we're very much looking to share best practice and to identify gaps and opportunities in innovation ecomes. And I think you've been very helpful uh, in identifying some of those for us with reference to South Africa. And thank you also to the audience for joining this episode of the Innovation Quotient. Thank you for listening to Innovation Quotient. For more information about the Innovation Quotient, please visit economistimpact.com forward slash innovation hyphen quotient.